Today's teaching text comes from Mark chapter 2, verse 23, through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Son, so, so the Son of Man is Lord even on the, of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, the man with the withered hand, come here, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marcellus. Well, uh, good morning, everyone, and uh, glad you're here today. My name is Russell, and I am the pastor for our community. Um, and uh, welcome. I'm glad that we could be together today. I know some of you are online today, uh, probably some of you on the beach in Miami, um, in which we're all jealous that uh, you're doing that. So um, actually, today is kind of a fun day um, for me. I, uh, you you might have heard my, my son uh, this is his first time in church, and I woke up this morning just really excited. I was like, I can hear my son gets to come to church for the first time and like be formed. Not really. He just gets to cry and walk around the hallway, but um, it's, it's exciting for me to think about um, the ways in which my daughter ha- is downstairs and learning and growing, and um, now my son gets to do the same thing. And so um, if you're joining us uh, for the first time, we have been tracking along in the book of Mark, and really what we're trying to do is capture a vision for the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What did he do? And we're not trying to um, tap into old um, religious experiences that we've had, but we're actually trying um, to capture a renewed vision of Jesus in our time. And we believe that this is important work. And um, so I guess before I, before I pray, I want to pray here, but um, I would just invite you to, to bring all of yourself in here today. You know, wherever, wherever your mind is, uh, wherever your spiritual journey has led you up to this point, I love um, the way that we'll describe that. Just be present in this place, and um, maybe I just, I'll pray for us in a second that, um, that God might teach us something new by His Spirit today. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into this text. And so, Father, we, we truly long um, to hear your still small voice. And I pray today uh, that we wouldn't um, rely on old religious experiences, that we wouldn't um, make Christianity or following your son Jesus into like a behavioral pattern, uh, but that we would hear fresh and anew that you're at work in our world, and we're desperate for you to be at work in our world. We need you, God. And so I pray today that through this text, you Um, would remind us of your character and what you uh, desire for us as people. And um, I I pray for myself right now, God, that um, I I come to this text with uh, limitations, with um, 
with a lack of understanding. And so I need your wisdom, God, um, as we look at this passage today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so the default mode of the human heart is always self-sufficiency. The default mode of the human heart is always self-sufficiency. And this was most evident in my own life uh, the first year I married my wife, Katie. Uh, I had been out of college for uh, four years. Um, I, I had a way of doing things. I was independent. I had lived away from my family for eight years. And um, I had my own things. I was self-sufficient. And then ironically enough, I married someone who was uh, more self-sufficient and more independent than I was. And so uh, as we put our lives together, we were figuring out how to not only put this other person first in our, each other's lives, but we were actually learning how to become dependent on one another. Like I knew what I liked. I knew what I didn't like. I didn't, I didn't need someone to come into my life and mix things up. I was self-sufficient. We live in a great global city, and uh, I don't think anyone uh, here would, would come in and say, well, you know, I, I, I'm really dependent on other people in this season, in this city. This is, this is not the way it works in New York. We work hard. We grind. We figure out how to pay the bills, and if we don't, we have to leave, right? That's, just, that's the way that it works, right? We have to be self-sufficient. And so if we have to be self-sufficient in our relationships, uh, in our work, in our city, what, what inevitably ends up happening is that same um, mode of being or that same self-sufficiency ends up seeping into our spiritual life. I got this. I can take care of this. I know how to manage this. I know, I know how to garner and gather wisdom. I know how to make wise decisions on my own, right? The default mode of the heart is self-sufficiency. And what this ends up doing, I want you to track with me here, what this ends up doing is it actually makes us fundamentally misunderstand Christianity. It makes us fundamentally misunderstand what the Christian faith is all about if we don't regularly reorient ourselves to the truths of Scripture, Right? Because what, what ends up happening is we naturally make the Christian faith in adherence to a strict moral code. Right, We somehow attempt to please God with our high moral standard and our goodness. Or uh, what many of us do is we actually draw our acceptance of, uh, of, from God from our kindness, how we treat other people, or our most recent religious uh, performance. Or some of us equally so maybe look at Christianity as sort of a decent um, psychology that helps us uh, maintain, maintain practices that keep us happy, right? That's the way that we look at Christianity. It's like, yeah, that's actually a good pathway for me to live a good life and to be happy. But here, we misunderstand what the Christian faith is all about. Um, it's sort of like um, what Starbucks has done to the macchiato, right? Um, if you go to Starbucks, you order a macchiato, you get a 32-ounce cup with like a vat of milk, a little bit of espresso, and so much caramel sauce, it's ridiculous, right? That's, but that's not what a macchiato is. Like a macchiato is a delicious drink. It's a shot of espresso with a dollop of milk, right? Starbucks has changed the way we understand the macchiato. And in the same way, if we don't reorient ourselves, that's like, that like a bad pathway in, right? But it's a way of understanding um, Christianity in a, new way, in a new way. And this is what this passage really helps us do. It helps us parse out, sort of do surgery on our own hearts to say, is there ways in which I understand the Christian faith that are wrong? Is there ways in which 
I'm trying to earn my favor with God. And so I want to follow this passage along. And so it's on, it's on your sheets there. I'm really going to kind of follow along. And so if you want to pull that out, I want to look at the passage like this. I want to look at the spirit of the Sabbath. And then um, we'll look at the spirit of religion. And then I want to wrap up talking about how, um, how it should be our desire as a church reunion to be uh, tenderhearted, to be soft-hearted, all right? And so here's the, the spirit of the Sabbath. In the passage, Jesus and his disciples are uh, walking through the grain field. And I, I'm not really familiar with grain fields, but they're basically taking the grain from the stalk and they're rubbing it through their hands to get to the core of the grain. And then they're like popping it in their mouth for a snack as they walk through these fields. And verse 24 says this, And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So we're catching on to a common theme here that we're going to see throughout the Gospels going forward. The Pharisees are watching Jesus. They're looking for him to make a mistake so they can snitch on him. He's breaking the rules again, right? This is, this is their, their pattern. And what's interesting here is we don't, we don't grasp some of the details that actually might be necessary to understand what breaking the Sabbath would be. Like, for example, um, how far are Jesus and his disciples walking? Because if they walk far enough, that could be breaking the Sabbath. Um, eating on the Sabbath is not necessarily a violation of the Sabbath law, but what is, is reaping. And their work, this is the, the work that they're doing of taking the stock grinding it through their hands, and taking the grain is considered reaping. They needed to prepare for that. And so that's the rule that they're breaking. And what Jesus does is Jesus, Jesus never wastes an opportunity to teach anybody anything. And so he uses this at an opportunity to teach. The religious leaders are taking this and saying, this is what God intended, right? Jesus is saying, this is what God made for good, the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees take it and they lord it over people. And so let's talk about the Sabbath for a minute, because um, the Sabbath isn't essentially the point of the text, but it's a way of understanding um, what the end result is. And so the Sabbath is actually the fourth commandment uh, in Exodus 20. Uh, In Exodus 20, verse 8, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We have so many questions to ask about, about the Sabbath, like we're, or else we're going to get it wrong. Like One of my questions that comes to mind that's really fascinating is, in six days the Lord worked, and on the seventh he rested. And I was like, why? God doesn't need to rest. He's God, right? Like God doesn't, he doesn't need to submit uh, to this limitation of rest. Or I even had to ask myself when I was reading this, like, wouldn't that make God less powerful if God needs to rest, if God gets tired? But it's not that. It's that God rests because what he made is good. God is not a workaholic. God is not anxious about the well-being of creation. And the well-being of creation, this is a lesson for us here, is not reliant on our endless work. Why? Because even God rests. And built into the very fabric of creation is a sustainable way of being and a sustainable way of life. Why? Because we get tired. We get burnt out. And what, what, what ends up happening is, is we realize one way or the other, 
We unplug ourselves or we will unplug. I was reading a, um, a book uh, that quoted Corey Tenboom this week, and it says, if the devil cannot make us bad, he will make us busy, right? If he can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. Like, even in our modern culture, like we, some of us have been in COVID isolation, and somehow in the midst of our COVID isolation, we've said, man, I'm so busy right now. Like, how? Like, you're supposed to be isolating. You're literally supposed to be doing nothing. But technology has made it uh, that we can work anywhere, so we work everywhere, and we work all the time, right? Our generation is the most emotionally fatigued, psychologically overworked. We're entertained, but we're never spiritually nourished. And so the command here is toward a sustainable life rhythm. And catch this, it's a gift. This is a gift from God. And in the Jewish culture, the, the Shabbat, the Sabbath, is observed from sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. And we may look at it and say, wow, there's so many restrictions, but let's get at the heart behind it, because this is actually the point of the passage. What is the, the spirit of the Sabbath? I don't know if you have any uh, Jewish friends, but if they keep the Sabbath in any real like, devout way, they won't drive, do their laundry, shop, use the phone, or turn off or on anything that has electricity. Uh, my wife and I were recently at the hospital, um, and at, the, at our hospital at Mount Sinai, uh, they have a Sabbath elevator. Has anybody seen, seen these Sabbath elevators? They're literally elevators that stop on every single floor so that if you're practicing the Sabbath, you can walk into the elevator. Hopefully you're not too high up, but it's going to stop on every single floor. And you and I might look at this and say, well, what exhausting, pious, you know, religious rule-keeping that these Sabbath keepers do, but it's, it's not that. In fact, many practice the Sabbath as a way of saying, I'm resting, I'm finding joy in what God has created and what he made as good. The problem with the Pharisees is they added to it. They, they added rules to it. They commanded, God commanded um, the, the rest, but they took it and made it something it was never intended to be. And so let's just do this really, really fast here because the Pharisees get a bad rap um, in the scriptures. And rightfully so, we'll kind of see some of that today and maybe we'll kind of uh, do some surgery in some of our own Pharisaic uh, tendencies, but when we hear this word, we think of, when we think of the word Pharisees, we think hypocritical, narrow-minded, prideful types. But in Jesus' day, being a Pharisee was actually a, a major honor. You, you would have huge praise. They were the religious elite of the day. They were the most committed followers of God. They knew the Bible, even though they didn't have the Bible as we have it today. They obeyed the Bible, and then they added commands on top of that just in case they might break things, rules in the Bible. And so the bar was, was sort of raised with these religious elite, but they were considered the most um, committed religious people of their day, right? They had the intellectual knowledge, they had strict behavioral compliance, and they measured everything by how hard they worked. And so maybe the question should be, is like, if they, had, if they were the religious elite of the day, why did Jesus have such a, such a hard time? Why did he have so many heated run-ins with them? And the reason is, is because they were pride, prideful. They, they had this intellectual knowledge that they used against other people. They held people to standards that they themselves weren't even keeping. And they tried to earn this sort of status with God. And that's what they were doing here in the passage with the Sabbath, but that was not God's original intention. The day was supposed to be holy. It wasn't a burden. It was a blessing. And so what is the spirit of the Sabbath? This is why Jesus ends up saying the Sabbath was 
made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so true Sabbath is animation of the soul, a gift from God uh, to seek out rejuvenation, restoration, joy. It's a time where our hearts are, are filled up so we can go back into our week ready to go. And so since, since it's us today, let's, let's do this, um, if, if you'd like to, um, just a few of us. Um, this isn't the main point of the day, but how do you rest? Like, whether you're practicing the Sabbath or not, uh, shout out, what's something that's restful to you on a day off? Sleep. Okay, I like it. What else? Reading. A couple more. Stretching? I, I love it. I love it. A little yoga in there, maybe? Okay. <laughs> Taking a walk, right? These are like little things that we do um, to make us, to remind us of our humanity, right? That we're humans, that we need to take a break. Now the other question then becomes, are you doing that thing, right? Are you taking the time um, to be reminded of your humanity? Um, I, took a, I was flipping through the Gospels this week, and I was like, how did Jesus seek um, replenishment? How did he model this? Because Jesus actually kept the Sabbath, though he breaks it here, and he makes no qualms about that. But I was going through, and I saw that Jesus sought um, replenishment through prayer, um, through time with his friends. He participated in corporate worship at the synagogue. Uh, he read Scripture he enjoyed creation. He got out to the mountains and the gardens and the lake. Uh, he took naps. Uh, he took walks. He welcomed children. He ate food. Particularly, he ate food with non-religious types. Um, and then, you know, one of the fascinating things about this passage, um, in, the, in the second part of this passage, is that Jesus on the Sabbath took time to meet the needs of other people. And he did so on the Sabbath. And I think that there's something really beautiful about that, that Jesus breaks the Sabbath by giving other people life and his time. And so, this is, this is the, the start of, of what we're building here today, is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The, the Sabbath was designed, the heart behind Jesus saying, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here, I'm present to give you the Sabbath, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. What he's actually saying is, I'm present to give you joy and restoration and life. And so then what happens here, right? What is the spirit of religion that begins to take over uh, A.J. Swoboda is a, a theologian, and he writes a book called Subversive Sabbath. And I'm sorry we don't have our screen. We're working on getting it back. But uh, here's what it says. It says, when all is said and done, the worst thing that has happened to the Sabbath is religion. Religion is hostile to gifts. Religion hates free stuff. I, lo I love that, right? Religion is hostile to gifts. Religion hates free stuff. Religion squanders the good gifts of God by trying to earn them, which is why we never really enjoy a sacred day of rest as long as we think our religion is about earning. And so <laughs> this passage is perfectly putting on display why we actually misunderstand uh, the Christian faith as a whole, because we're making it about earning. And look at what happens in verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But what? They were silent. Right? Jesus grasped the, the nature of the Sabbath. He knew what it was about. And he actually ends chapter 2 by saying, I'm actually Lord of the Sabbath. Like I'm ushering in a new kingdom. I'm, I'm about to actually do another thing. I'm doing something new. He walks into the synagogue and he brings up this man 
and I don't know, withered hand, I, you know, I don't know what it seems like, but it seems like it's a condition um, that he's had all of his life. And he pulls this man up, not to, not to shame him or to pull him up in front of everyone. And, it, you know, I actually thought about that in this passage. I thought, it's a little odd that Jesus uses this man like a prop. But if Jesus can actually heal this man, then it's worth it. Then everything he does is worth it. And he's moved by this man's situation. And he looks back at the Pharisees and says, what is the intent of the Sabbath? to do good or to do harm, life or death. For the Pharisees, the intent of the Sabbath was not life, restoration, or joy, but it was observance, right? Don't show up, don't break any laws, do nothing, rest, just be. But for Jesus, it was more nuanced. It was about life and rest. And what, the text is so fascinating. And at the end of verse 4, Jesus asks the question, and it simply says, but they were silent. Jesus, Jesus heard everything he needed to know with their silence. And what do they say in response? And he, Jesus, in verse 5, he looked around with them, anger and grieved at their hardness of hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Look at that. Anger and grieved. Right? This is the emotional life of Jesus beginning uh, to come out, which is a common theme throughout the book of Mark. We're, we're catching that Jesus is God in the flesh with emotions. Right, And so it's fascinating this word um, withered is used. The, the man's hand is withered. It, it made me think of um, how the, the man's hands are withered, but the Pharisees' hearts are shriveled and withered. Imagine this moment, like Jesus is giving hope to this person, like this is a powerful moment. You can imagine being in like a worship service where someone is like finding, their, their, their gears are turning, like things are working for them again. It's like they're, they're figuring it out. This is a moment of beauty and you're worried about time. You're worried about the rules. You're worried about what everyone else is thinking. And for Jesus, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this at the end, but for Jesus, this is a big moment, right? Jesus could have been like, you know what, this is, actually, this is actually getting a little too hot. Like, I, I'm about to be found out who I am. Like, I, I, I could just do this in, in, in private. Like, we could do this later. Like, his withered hand, maybe he's, his withered hand has probably been with him for a while. It's like, maybe just wait till not the Sabbath to heal this man, right? That, that could have been a real option here. But this exposes the religious heart at its finest. The spirit of religion is that of self-righteousness. I'm better because I have this. I'm better because I believe this, right? Anyone that doesn't believe as I do or do as I do is the enemy. I really want to hone in here um, and and say this because um, what I'm finding through uh, reading this Gospel of Mark and ways in which we even speak about religion, you know, um, outside of church and, and, you know, and sometimes even inside the church is that there, there seems to be like a, a wedge happening in the church where we're figuring out that there's a difference between actually, truly following Jesus, taking on his ways and patterns for our, our life, and then some of the, there's, there's a difference between some of the forms of so-called Christianity that some of us have adopted in our lives. And, and my guess is, is even in this room, there are people who have been hurt and disappointed and excluded, or put out of, or not cared for, or misunderstood at some churches, or in some Christian circles. And I think what's fascinating about the passage is, that's what grieves Jesus. Like, that's the thing that breaks Jesus' heart, when, 
we experience um, religion, but, we, but, but it's, it's outside of the realm of what God wants. And some of us have been tainted by that um, religious experience. And if that's you today, I just want to tell you that breaks the heart of God. Like that breaks the heart of God that you experienced a tainted view of who God is. And so what is that spirit of religion? Because I want to narrow this down. I actually want to get a little bit more um, specific. I want to say three things about the, the spirit of religion. And um, there's going to be two, two different ways to look at each of these. We can look at it and say, I've experienced that personal, and that's valid. But the other way is, I've done that. And we need to be realistic about that. Because like I said, the default mode of the human heart is self-sufficiency. Meaning what? It's possible that in the story, you're not Jesus. You're not the disciples. But what you actually find is that you um, have some of the pharisaical tendencies that we take place. I, I saw that in my own heart and in my own life, and I'll share some of that here. So the spirit of religion is one of, the, the first thing is exclusivity. And so um, don't, don't forget this takes place in the synagogue, right? This is like a house of worship where this is taking place. And what do the Pharisees do in this place? Someone is coming for, for hope, restoration, and healing, and they're only watching Jesus to prove him wrong. They completely miss the miracle that's unfolding right before their eyes. Um, Timothy Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, long quote, sorry guys, it is widely believed that one of the main barriers to world peace is religion, and especially the major traditional religions with their exclusive claims to superiority. It may surprise you that though I'm a Christian minister, I actually agree with this. Religion, generally speaking, tends to create a slippery slope in the heart. Each religion informs its followers that they have the truth, and this naturally leads them to feel superior to those with differing beliefs. Also, a religion tells its followers that they are saved and connected to God by devotedly performing that truth. This moves them to separate from those who are less devoted and pure in life. Therefore, it's easy for one religious group to stereotype and caricature other ones. Once this situation exists, it can easily spiral down into marginalization of others and even to activate oppression, abuse, and violence against them. What does it mean? What we, on the other side of what we idolize, we demonize. On the other side of what we idolize, we, we demonize. And so if we think that we hold all the answers and all the truth, we're going to demonize the other, and what do we begin to do? We begin to hold off with the people that agree with us. Again, something else we've repeatedly seen in churches. I have been a part of churches that have um, created insider cultures, elitism, um, where one group's preferences take precedent over the, the others. And I've, I've, I've been on the inside of those groups, and I've been on the outside of those groups. And, and, and I, even as I was looking at this, I was like, I'm ashamed to, to think about the ways that I've been a part of an insider culture that marginalized or pushed other people out of the center. And what do we do? We just raise the bar, right? They don't have the answers we do. They don't understand the passages we do. They don't like the same things that we do. Or we hold specific verses in the Bible just really, really tight. But that's not the way that it's supposed to be, right? And, and really, what, what, what ends up happening in this passage that's so fascinating is we actually really come to grips with our own hearts. Um, Paul, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, says, This saying is trustworthy, and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul's like, I'm the worst sinner ever. And if we really understand the Christian faith, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of our own merit or our own behavior, 
but by the pure and sheer grace of God, if we really grasp that, what that actually is going to do to all of us, it's going to drive us into a deep humility. It's going to, it's going to root out the superiority in our lives because we're understanding I'm broken, I'm the worst sinner, I understand who I am in relation to who God is, and what is it going to do? It's going to humble me to the dirt, and I'm going to look at other people, and I'm going to say, I am no better than anyone else. I am not superior. And that's what a follower of Jesus should look like. A follower of Jesus should always understand I'm not superior to anybody. I don't need to hold my head super high in this way. I'm humbled because I need Jesus just as much as the person next to me. And that's the exclusivity that begins to happen, and that's the spirit of religion. But the spirit of religion is not just one of exclusivity. It's one of hypocrisy. Um, I remember a few years ago, this is before the pandemic, I was getting on the, the 6 train uh, going uptown, and the train is pretty full, but you look over and there's like one guy on, the, uh, on this one bench, and you know, that's always a recipe for like, don't sit over there. And so um, I look over and this guy is absolutely murdering a combo meal from McDonald's. And like, I, it's like the works, right? It's like saucy Big Mac, fries and ketchup, and like a big drink. And he is just slamming this thing. I'm just like judging him, rolling my eyes. I'm like, I hate when people eat on the train. Anybody with me? Like, I hate when people eat on the train. But here's the truth. I eat on the train, right? Like, I'm such a hypocrite. I hate when other people do it, but I eat on the train. Like, I'm looking at this guy thinking what he's doing is gross, but it's because why? Like, well, I only eat a bagel on the train, not like a combo meal from McDonald's, right? Like, I only eat like a quick bar and like a coffee on the train, but not a Big Mac from McDonald's, right? And what, what is that about us? Even in silly ways, we begin, um, without even thinking about it, we begin to rationalize and judge other people based on uh, their behavior. I'm not, I'm not as obnoxious a, as him, right? And so we're raising the bar for, uh, for other people, but lowering it for ourselves. I don't even follow my own standards in that way, right? That's what's so ironic about who we are as people. We, we betray our own standards and ways of being. And here's what we do. And I just, this is like seared into my brain this week. We judge other people by their actions, but we hope other people judge us by our intentions. Right? We judge other people by their actions, but we hope other people judge us by our intentions. And this is what happens in the text. This is crazy what happens in the text. How did Jesus break the Sabbath in the, passage, in the two passages? reaping grain, maybe walking too far, and, and, and doing an elective healing on the Sabbath. This is Jesus breaking the Sabbath. But look at the Pharisees. What does it say in verse 6? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus breaks the Sabbath by healing and eating grain, giving his grain to his disciples. The Pharisees break the Sabbath by planning murder, right? <laughs> which, which one outweighs the other here, right? How hypocritical we are that we want people to judge us by our actions but expect them to judge us by our intentions. And this is, the, this is like the perpetual problem of like internet discourse. Like it's, this is why it's like impossible uh, to talk to anybody on the internet. We strip them of their humanity. We assume they understand our intentions and then we say exactly what we would not say to their face because we're hypocrites, right? And the temptation here is to... to um, to think of other people, even right now, right? That's what hypocrisy would do uh, in this moment is say, oh, you know, they do that so well. And often the Bible is a window, like the, a, a way of seeing the world, but actually um, this passage, I think, is one that should be looked at like a mirror where we see a reflection of the way that we could be. I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about our, our musicians and thinking about 
like the Pharisees and the, the ways in which um, they miss what God is doing in their midst in, in the person of Jesus. And the Pharisees are like musicians that went to school for music. They learned to read the charts. They learned to listen to music, but they never created something of beauty. They never created something that they appreciated. They never created something that they said, wow, that just moves and stirs into my heart because they got into the weeds, but they missed the heart. And so maybe that's for you today, just to kind of simmer on. Um, I, don't, you know, I, don't want to know, I don't know how hard we want to go on that, but, um, but in, here's the question. In what ways do you betray your own standards? And what does that reveal about the hypocrisy of your own heart? And then lastly, the spirit of religion is one of cynicism. And so exclusivity, um, hypocrisy, and then um, cynicism. Verse 4 says, And he looked around at them, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. In what ways are our hearts growing hardened? And I, to be candid, I, I, think, um, I think this happens to us over time, you know, where we don't even realize it, but we're raising the bar for other people. We're tired. We're worn out. We're frustrated with people. We bail on them. We're just, our heart is growing hardened towards others. Um, I was... Um, I don't know if you saw this piece this week, this story that's been circulating on the internet, but it was uh, between a, a judge in Michigan, um, and she was berating a, 70, a 72-year-old um, cancer patient for his unkept yard in an online court session. And so he received a ticket. They showed the pictures of the weeds growing on his sidewalk and uh, growing around his uh, garage. And there was, there was quite a few. It was, no, you know, it was like, yeah, there's definitely weeds there. You can go watch the video if you can stomach it. But the judge says, you can plead responsible, uh, responsible with explanation, or you can plead not responsible. And the man, I believe his name was Burhan, he says, um, you, can, you can hear him. He's a cancer patient. He's trying to catch his breath. And he says, I'm a cancer patient. I'm very old. I've been very weak and sick. It's the rainy season, and I, I just can't get to it. And the, the judge just starts chiding him. She says, you should be ashamed of yourself. If I could give you jail time for this, I would. You better get this cleaned up. This is terribly inappropriate. This is shameful. Your neighbor should not have to look at this. And I was just like, no, like who is this woman? Like let's make a petition to fire her, like immediately. Oh, this is crazy stuff. What is happening? And in the, at the end of the video, like seriously, if you could watch this, if you could stomach it, but at the end of the video, the man's um, son comes on. He says, ma'am, isn't this forgivable? My father is so and this is legalism at its finest. It creates a world devoid of grace. It creates a world devo devoid of grace. Jesus has to be dealt with in this passage because they can't deal with a world of grace in his legalism. And this is it. This is as, a, as like a community of people. Like this, is what, this is what our community needs. This is what our world and our city and our neighborhoods are actually desperate for, our people with tender hearts. Whose, whose hearts are soft towards other people. Like, I'm just going to be honest, I don't have a lot of patience for other people. I, I'm running out the door. Like, my wife's like, can you slow down for me? I'm like, I have no patience for other people. And so I'm learning where we can be people that are learning to listen to people with other perspectives, where we can be true to who we are, right? Like, not to be hypocrites, but where kindness and goodness and gentleness are undergirding our operating systems because we understand that we didn't deserve grace, but we got it anyway, and our hearts are becoming tender. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, um, 
the, God is telling the Israelites what, what his plans are for them as a people, what he wants to do, how he wants to restore them. And um, this passage is so beautiful. He says, For I will take you out of the nations. This is uh, Ezekiel uh, 36. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So how does God want to soften your heart? How does God want to take out the heart of stone, the cynicism, the fear? How does he want to take that out? And how does he want to put a, a, a new heart, a heart of flesh in you? And I'll show you how he wants to do it. And this will, this will be our last thing. Uh, you guys, if you, the band, if you guys want to come up, you can. Um, Mark chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Look at this last part. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to them, to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against how they might destroy him. Most commentators actually think that um, this is a turning point. Even this early on in the book of Mark, um, this, this, is, this is a turning point that's actually going to put Jesus on a trajectory towards the cross. The, the Pharisees go out, and they plan how they might kill him. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill it? And I was like, why the repetition, right? Why the repetition, to do good or to do harm? Just leave it there, right? To save life or to kill it? And one commentator that I was reading, I just thought this was so profound. He said, to do good or to do harm, that applies to the man with the withered hand. To save life or to kill, he, one commentator says, that actually has to do with Jesus. And so Jesus knows exactly what he's doing in this moment. He says, man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand, and he heals him. In the same way that Jesus would be told, stretch out your hand and be put on the cross to save life or to kill. Jesus, Jesus knew. And so this, this, this gospel text is like pure um, good news that the love and forgiveness and healing and restoration is free. Jesus went to the cross to heal a man's withered hand that probably could have waited. That, that, that's it. Like This set him on the trajectory towards his death. And this cost him the very life, his very life, healing this man's hand. And so, um, what does it make us evaluate? It makes us evaluate our religion, what we believe, how it manifests, what it looks like, because Jesus died so that we could find our righteousness in him and not in our behavior, our religion, and we rest in him, our hope is in him, our life is in him, and our joy is in him, and that's where we get ultimate rest. Let's pray. And so, Father, I love the... I love this, this picture that you would be willing um, to give your life for the hand of a man that's withered. Um, and so in, in some ways what that makes me believe is that you, uh, we could respond to that today, that you would give your life for our exclusivity, for our hypocrisy, for the things that we've done wrong, whatever, whatever it may be. And um, so God, we... we um, we come, and maybe, maybe the word that we actually need to come with is, is that we repent, God. We repent of the ways that we put ourselves first, of the ways that we actually haven't even been thinking outside of ourselves, and we, we come and we need to repent of that. Or maybe, maybe 
for us today, it's actually um, a softening that you're doing in our heart where our hearts have been really hard towards other people, where you're tearing down walls and you're reminding of, uh, uh, reminding of us of our superiority or lack thereof. And so God, make us a community, like not just individually, but us as a people, make us people that are soft, that are, um, that are people of love and care, that are ready to listen to others, despite what they believe, how they behave, whatever it may be, but that we would be like your son Jesus, and that we would be reminded that it's a sacrifice, but God, you proved that it was a sacrifice that was worth it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.